Hey there, servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about uh, some very interesting things I noted in Vladimir Putin's State of the Nation address. And then we're going to have a brief update on the situation in Chad. We talked about that last episode. And then we have a major shift in the geopolitics of the Middle East uh, that I think is pretty symbolic. Well, not symbolic, but I think it's important. But anyway, all that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid-fire news, and it's actually rapid-fire this time. So, we have the U.S. hosting a virtual climate summit. It had a whole bunch of world leaders uh, from France, Germany, Britain. I believe Britain was there. Yeah, Boris was there. Uh, Russia, China, India, the EU, the European Commission, and the European Council. Um, I need to familiarize myself. I know two out of the three. There's the commission, and there's the court of justice. Yeah, I'll familiarize myself with that later. But there were two EU leaders there, so that's what kind of threw me off just a minute ago. Um, and there was it was this major thing, uh, major thing, kind of, because it was virtual, and they all had like these pre pre-planned speeches and not much was sort of like really agreed upon uh it's on paper it was a summit but it was really more just a get together um so i'd imagine people who are really concerned about you know the climate um and climate change which i am not one of those people but i'd imagine if you were this would be a pretty big letdown because Nothing material really surfaced from it, or anything that could be construed as, you know, material. Like, no concrete, we're going to do this by this, and here's our plan. Just, we think that this is important, and we're going to work towards it, and then move on to the next guy. Uh, China tried to upstage America, and time will tell if they've succeeded. And you could tell... You could tell Putin didn't want to be there at all. But, so there was that. Uh, while we're still on the topic of the United States, we have officially recognized the Armenian Genocide as a genocide. Turkey was naturally very upset with us over this. And we had uh, the Armenian population in the United States. They were celebrating. Pretty nice, you know. Yeah. A hundred years in the making, well, over a hundred years in the making, actually, a hundred and ten years in the making. Is it ten? No, it's like a hundred and five. It happened in 1915, so, what is that, six? Yeah, a hundred and six, a hundred and six years in the making, but here we are, acknowledging that genocide for what it was, a genocide. Clap for us, for we are noble. <laughs> I'd imagine Turkey's 
very, very much not upset about that. And I'm not even just talking about their leadership. I'm talking about the people. Yeah, the way that's an easy way to piss people off. So we'll see how strong this whole Turkey... We'll, we'll see how strong the NATO alliance really is, you know? My view is that it's kind of there, but not really there. If America's not there, then there's really no NATO. But I imagine that this isn't doing NATO any favors as an institution. Especially when you factor in that Turkey has the second largest army in NATO. And aside from Russia, the largest army in Europe. <clears throat> so... We'll see how this plays out. Uh, I was listening to the Duran, and they brought up how Turkey doesn't exactly have many options right now because of all the bridges they burned. But I see Turkey. Well, actually, I don't know what I see Turkey doing either. I mean, especially with what we're going to talk about happening with Syria the other day. Um, so, oh, and that was that was kind of a very interesting thing. I actually cannot wait to tell you about it, but it's at the end of the episode, so you'll have to bear with me for the rest of it. Meanwhile, Mexico is looking to get access to the Russian COVID vaccine, um, and we've talked about Russia just throwing vaccines across the world, uh, probably single-handedly putting an end to the, to the virus, at least as far as people who want the vaccine go. <laughs> So we'll see if they get like a, a Nobel Peace Prize for this or med maybe they'll give themselves a Medal of Honor. Ah, I'd say they deserve it. All the vaccines they've been dishing out and outsourcing. Now that I think about it, Russia has done quite a whole lot with these vaccines. I'm not even going to lie. You know, I, I, I mean, I did a whole episode where I, well, not a whole episode, but a whole segment in one of the episodes in the past where we specifically covered all the countries at that time who the Russians had given access to their vaccine for. South Korea, India, uh, a whole, basically the entire former Soviet sphere minus Ukraine and the Baltics. Um, now, with the AstraZeneca scandal, Europeans who were previously trying to get the AstraZeneca vaccine and were denigrating the Russian vaccine are now turning head over heels to get the Russian vaccine uh, in light of the buckled vaccine rollout. Uh, and the Brits are laughing all the way to the bank, um, not helping the EU's declining situation at all. And now they are dependent on the vaccine from the country that they make into a boogeyman against their, for their populace. So that's, that's a whole situation right there. Hmm. Russia is, with the vaccine alone, that's a pretty major geostrategic move uh, with regards to soft power anyway. I won't pretend that they've changed any strategic calculi uh, and by doing that, but it's definitely a massive boost to soft power. And that's unquantifiable, but it's there and it exists and it can potentially be used for means later on. So definitely pretty wise and pretty good moves being made by the Russians in general as we take a moment to step back and look at all that in retrospect uh, now Ru Mexico is being added 
or trying to be added to the list of beneficiaries of the Russian vaccine. And we'll move on to Albania, who has had a very tight election. Um, that's, as far as I know, still undecided. I believe Peru is in a similar situation. Either that or the socialists won in Peru. I'm not, I kind of glossed over that story. Um, uh, it's either the Peruvians are in a similar situation or the socialists won the election in Peru. Um, in other news, though, while we move away from Albania, I just thought it was a nice little thing to include here. Um, but we have Iran, and we'll be talking a bit more about Iran later on. Their foreign minister has visited Iraq to kind of build relations a bit more. Uh, Iraq and Syria kind of being within Iran's sphere of influence uh, in combination with the Houthi rebels in Yemen. So that's a pretty broad sphere of influence. Uh, you also had to factor in Hezbollah and other factions in Lebanon. So it's a pretty, pretty broad and far-reaching sphere of influence that they've carved out for themselves in the Middle East. Um, and we'll get into some of the payoffs of it later. Again, I'm excited for this uh, segment we're going to be doing on it, uh, but we have to we have to get to it first. So Iran sent a foreign minister to Iraq. They're probably talking it out, and they also had a tanker ship that was en route to Syria that was attacked. And it lit up in flames. Uh, the fires were put out pretty quickly. But it was attacked nonetheless. And given the tensions right now, all eyes are on Israel right now. Uh, I don't imagine anyone else is going to be catching the blame for that. At least uh, from the Iranian government. I don't imagine the Iranians are going to look at anyone other than Israel as being behind these attacks. Uh, especially when you look at who owns what parts of the coastline that leads to Syria. Because Iran has to send their boats through the Gulf around the peninsula, uh, around the Arabian Peninsula, through the Suez Canal. And then it has to sail up the Levantine coast, which is the little part of Egypt that's on the other side of the Suez. Then you have Israel, then you have Lebanon, then you have Syria. So that coastline is only there's only four countries there one of them is in a civil war one of them is egypt who i don't imagine is going to be attacking boats uh the second they come out the suez because that would disincentivize greatly people going through the suez at all so we can cross egypt off the list uh lebanon is in a civil war so we can cross them all the way off the list so who does that leave oh yeah israel and syria hmm so who could be shooting at our vessels? Um, well, obviously it's going to be the Syrians who were sending the vessels to aid. No, it's Israel. It's. It. I swear, those two. I I can't even say those two. It's Israel at this point. This is all. This is all Israel right here, and we can we can go on and on about who started what animosities. But this specific string of provocations, we can go straight to nobody other than Israel right now. And it's getting hot. It's getting hot. We talked about it last episode. We'll probably 
talk about it in passing in future episodes because it never seems to like die down enough for me to ignore it um so we'll keep our eyes on this it's small right now but eventually there's gonna come a breaking after all these attacks these blatant wide open out in the open attacks on iran iranians iranians I mean, it's eventually going to be met with some sort of retaliation. And I mean meaningful retaliation, not, oh, you attacked us, we're going to throw some rockets at you. No, 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 I'm talking like declaration of war, all assets are now on the table type response. And what happens after that is anybody's bet, although... Given the changing nature of warfare right now, we're in a bit of a transition phase to whatever the new face of warfare is going to be, because we've been operating off of roughly what World War II looked like, and it took that conflict to really iron out what war at that point would look like compared to, you know, World War I before that and the Crimean and Napoleonic Wars before that, so... As we're in this transition phase where new technologies are being applied, um, or at least attempted to be applied, it's going to take some sort of real conflict to really figure out what technologies are best for what purposes, or at least get a feel for it. Um, We could see something very different from what we saw in the past, where Israel was able to, you know, fight off six countries at once. Or fight off massive numbers, will fight at a massive numbers disadvantage and still win and take territory in the peace conference. We could see something like what happened in Nagorno-Karabakh where the Armenians, who used to almost always just trounce the Azerbaijanis, uh, got clapped because Azerbaijan had drones and Armenia didn't really know how to respond to that. We could see something similar if things escalate to that point. Iran does produce all of its own military vehicles, so it could ramp up production rather than relying on purchasing more arms outside of Iran. And that's a major strength. Uh, Israel can't necessarily do that, although it can for a lot of its weapons. But it does have a decent number of its weapon systems from the United States that it would have to purchase uh, from us and then have it get shipped to us and hope that the Iranians have no way of stopping that from happening, which uh, a couple cruise missiles or ballistic missiles to your ports and air bases could probably, probably suffice in stopping shipments like that. But... Outside of the uh, potential war between those two, um, we have Spain uh, begging for British tourists, and they're the second country in Europe to do that. The first was Greece, um, and you're seeing kind of like the southern rim of the EU. We talked about how they're kind of working against what the EU's official position on, say, immigration is. Uh, steadily and steadily they're drifting in the opposite direction of what the EU says its immigration policy is. And we'll see how the EU responds to that. I don't know if they've noticed yet, because it's kind of subtle right now. 
But in time, I'd imagine there's going to come some sort of hard schism where it's either going to have to be, you know, rectified and reconciled or you have a formal split of the EU or the EU just straight up retaliates against its internal members along its southern, you know, Mediterranean coastline and they just vote to leave and we could do i'd imagine immigration is going to tear the eu apart if they don't get it together uh so yes there's a little bit of eu for you right there but now we're going to get into the meat of this episode and we're going to start off with chad we talked about chad last episode uh, and i'm kind of actually no not since i did that episode where i covered a whole bunch of minor countries um i'm happy i did that because now we have an update on this story that I literally just covered last week. Um, the Chad, the president of Chad, Idris Deby, uh, he died while visiting troops in the north of the country near the front line. And last episode, we talked about the rebel offensive that was going on in the north of the country uh, and how they were pushing south after they took control of a military base in the north. And we talked about how U.S. diplomats were being evacuated because of the danger that these rebels were getting pretty close, were getting awfully close to the capital. And this is a major event because Chad has a competent military fighting force, uh, at least one of the most competent in Africa, which may not say a lot given the state of most militaries in Africa. But, again, everything is relative. So, you don't necessarily have to be a superpower, but regional power. Chad was a regional powerhouse with regards to its military. And when you are you have a competent, capable military, and your neighbors are bordering on being failed states... That makes you tantamount to God, okay? That's, that's what that means. So to see this um, potential radical shift in who owns this country with this potent military force, at the very least by African standards, um, was a bit of a shock since I actually looked at the situation here. Uh, now, Idris Deby... Uh, served for 30 years as the president of Chad. Um, and when he died, Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, he said that France has lost a brave friend. And one of the reasons he would say this is because Chad has been a major ally to France and the United States in Africa. Uh, they deployed around 2,000 troops in Mali to help the French fight militants and rebel groups in the country. France has given up its empire in name only, as if you... There was this little infographic that I saw, and it kind of... It kind of laid out all the engagements, the military engagements that the French military is in, in Africa, and if you... Look at those borders, they look awfully, strangely, eerily similar to what the French Empire looked like. Now, I won't jump to any conclusions, 
but I can speculate that they haven't really given up their empire, um, and they're maintaining strong influence over the goings-on in the countries that used to be part of their empire, and Chad was one of them. Now, Chad was more cooperative in this endeavor, where they, the French intervention in Mali, which I believe is still going on. I believe they're still fighting there, and between Mali and West Sahara, but nevertheless, this was a very, this is a more important story than I thought it was, even back when I covered it in the last episode, and yeah, very interesting. I learn more about the world every day doing this little podcast, but now we get into Putin's State of the Nation Address. And this is a big boy. This is a big boy. And we will get into it in just a moment. All right. So on Wednesday last week, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin gave his annual State of the Nation Address. And there were some things that caught my attention. And when I listened to it, uh, for starters, he emphasized preserving Russia's culture and traditions. He then went on to make public his goals for Russia to achieve sustainable population growth by 2030. Now, those two things alone really caught my attention, um, especially with how much he emphasized preserving Russia's culture and its traditions and Russian identity throughout the country. Like You could tell that that was a one of the major things he wanted to really, really get across, uh, and the fact that he put it at the beginning of the speech, these, uh, his him talking about culture and the traditions, um, made it clear that this was kind of really important, at least um, important moving forward. There's important developments there, so that caught my attention. And, and of course... The fact that he said he wanted to achieve sustainable population growth by 2030 really caught my attention. Because there's... Russia's has a... Russia has a bit of a population problem in that their population is aging and they aren't having enough kids to replace themselves. So they eventually... Well, actually, they kind of are already. They have a shrinking population. I believe they were at like 146 or 7 million a couple years ago. Now they're at about 145 to 44 million. Uh, Now, granted, that's still 140-something million people, but it's shrinking nonetheless. Um, And that's not exactly good for a country who historically depends on both its size uh, geographically and its manpower to repel invaders. And so having what the smallest Russia we've seen in a couple hundred years on top of a shrinking population is a nightmare uh, from a strategic point of view, but just from a national point of view, or at the very least the perspective of someone who runs a country, you don't exactly want your population shrinking so there's that was something that really caught my attention 
Especially because if the only way you're going to achieve population growth is by addressing the demographic problem. And we talked about how Russia would have to address it at some point way back when Putin um, stressed. Um, well, it wasn't Putin or was it someone else, but it was a Russian official who had stressed they wanted Russia to achieve uh, more self-sufficiency and autonomy and within its economy and due to the patterns of demographics the various demographics interact differently economically young people consume middle-aged people tend to invest and retirees uh, don't do either they draw from the system they draw from their uh, pensions and social security in the united states and they draw from medical services. So, given that, if you want economic growth and a, you know, a, how do I put it? A domestic market that is strong enough to where you can rely on yourself for economic growth and not rely on the markets of other countries, you have to have young people. So if you want that, which Russia is losing, uh, its young population is still shrinking. If Russia wants those things, I brought up that they would have to address the demographics problem. And here they are. Here they are. It's come up again. And this time I think it's here to stay. They They want sustainable population growth by 2030. That in and of itself is going to require Russians to start having more kids uh, just to get to replacement rate, let alone go beyond that to have sustainable growth or growth of any kind, really. So that is what caught my attention right off the bat. And then from there, he went off to say, uh, Putin went off to say he wanted to use government aid to incentivize and alleviate the financial burden of childbirth. People who raise kids are well aware that they are expensive. And he wanted to use state incentives to, again, alleviate some of that financial burden. And he wanted to do that in a multitude of ways. Uh, uh, And I'll get into that because he brought up the issue of, uh, on top of, wanting to have sustainable population growth. He didn't bring up that the population was shrinking, but he wanted growth. He also mentioned the issue of the declining life expectancy rates in Russia. Um, so that was another thing that I actually didn't know about. The life expectancy is declining, which in a grim side note, I don't have in my notes right now, but I just, uh, while I was thinking about this episode... The lower life expectancy means people who retire are going to be around less longer to reap the benefits of their retirement, meaning Russia, even though its its demography is really bad, still has the potential to recover from the the impending, uh, what, boomer retirement crisis that's going to destroy economic systems the world over at least the way we've run economic systems so far and by we i mean people who aren't the united states so in that the drain on an economy that having large numbers of elderly 
would have will be alleviated partially in Russia because those old people aren't going to live very long. So they'll probably, uh, that that's like a grim little side note because obviously you want elderly people to live a nice full life, but since they won't be living as long in Russia as they would in other places, the period of time that they would be a drain on the system through their retirement will be shorter, meaning Russia, again, has the potential to really turn things around even after the crisis hits them, the demographic crisis hits them. So that's kind of why I'm looking at the Russians with this little bit of optimism here. Uh, and on top of that, they are addressing the problem in the first place, which is kind of the first step to actually dealing with it. Now, he... What did he do? He want... Oh, yeah, all right. He wanted to alleviate the fur, the burdens of childbirth. And I mentioned he wanted to do this in a multitude of ways. So, he wanted... Effectively, uh, I'm going to sum it up here. He wants really heavy investment into Russia's youth. He wants to invest resources into better schools, better buses, better pencils, and better libraries, as well as better teachers for Russian children. Now, Putin also stressed the importance of Russia being largely self-sufficient in what they need, from its industrial plant to commercial enterprise to investment, uh, and he also had a focus on wanting to make those things easier to engage in. So, those combined um, spell out something that could be really good for the Russians in the future. Again, the fact that he's even talking about the demographic issue, partially, he hasn't... Again, he didn't mention that the population was declining. He said the... He did bring up, again, life expectancy were going down. He didn't mention the population was declining. He said he wants it positive and to go up. So the fact that he's even mentioning these things is already indic indicative that Russia's on the right track to repair and fix the problem. And I've mentioned a decent number of times, and by decent I mean like three times in my podcast, that even if... Um, well, actually, I've mentioned that countries that make the effort now even though they're still going to have to go through the pain of the, what their demographics are because you it takes decades to change your demographics so even though they'll have to go through the pain of the retirement of the boomers they can pull through sometime in the latter half of the century I've talked about Hungary doing that uh, Sweden and France we could see Russia do that as well. And again, the fact that he's even mentioning this tells us that Russia could be on the right on the right track. Now, heavy investment into it, Russia's youth. So on top of more children, heavy investment into those children uh, and self-sufficiency in what Russia will need moving forward. He wanted to commit it about 500 billion rubles for the modernization of infrastructure on top of that. Um, that was a, like a major point that he wants. Um, uh, it was either a major highway or 
a modernized rail line, probably some combination of the two. He went up between Moscow and a series of other cities that stretched in just east of the Urals, so kind of pretty moderately deep into the Russian interior. So that's pretty important. He wanted modern. He wanted modernization of Chelyabinsk, which is, if you're unfamiliar, it's the city that was famous for having that meteor explode over it um, a couple years back. He also, towards the end of his speech, because um, it was mostly directed towards domestic issues, but towards the end of his speech, he did uh, accuse foreign entities of attempting to overthrow Lukashenko, the president, uh, well, the dictator slash president of Belarus. He talked about Russia's red lines and how they won't tolerate those lines being crossed. He talk, He spoke about how Russia will decide what those red lines are on whatever issue the Russians decide to establish them on. So I imagine this is going to be some sort of turning point or at the very least a warning as to where the Russians are going to, as to how the Russians are going to operate moving forward where they feel like their red lines are kind of getting infringed upon so they're going to probably try to clarify what they are and what they won't tolerate so I'd imagine we can look out for that in the future and on a, as a side note here we when he talks about red lines there's likely uh, no he is definitely talking about Ukraine and Belarus uh, again the coup attempt at Belarus which up to which included an assassination attempt on Lukashenko at least that's what they claim and we'll have to investigate these claims so we can kind of get a better picture of what he's talking about here and obviously he's talking about the Ukraine when he says the red lines because there's been intensifying uh, tensions in the Ukraine uh, particularly along the contact line between the Ukrainian government and the rebels in the east. We've talked about that in passing because the situation hasn't changed all that much, but it kind of came back into the focus of a lot of other... Uh, well, it's come back into the news recently, I'll say that much, so I felt it was worth bringing back up. So we'll have to keep our eyes on that as well. And all in all, I saw this speech as being rather important. Uh, obviously, I saw it as important because I'm talking about it. But on another level, uh, I saw it being important first because we have yet another leader addressing the demographic issue looming over their country. And nearly every other leader whose country has this issue has so far ignored the issue and that issue being the aging demographics which are caused by decades of sub-replacement level fertility rates now i've talked about this issue and most extensively in an episode i did a while back way way back called the relative power of nations and since then i've sort of uh, laid out my belief that countries who make the attempt to repair their demographics and get their fertility rates up uh, to the 2.1 uh, children per woman 
mark, which is considered replacement rate, and even beyond that, if they can, uh, I have speculated that they will do better. Even if they don't get above replacement rates, which is also pretty possible and likely for a lot of countries who may start to try to do this a little bit too late, even if they don't get above replacement rates, um, countries who make the attempt at repairing their demographics will earn a better position relative to other countries uh, that don't make the attempt at all. And the best way I can exemplify this is imagine if you have a bowling ball and you have a little bit, uh, you have a kite. You have, no, not a kite, a bowling ball and a parachute. There you go. You have a bowling ball and a parachute. Which one's going to fall faster? The, the bowling ball, obviously. But if we look at things from a relative point of view, as far as that bowling ball is concerned, the guy with the parachute is going up. Even though they're both falling, one of them is falling slower. One of them is falling slower, but the gap is getting bigger. So relatively speaking, that is the same as somebody staying still and the other guy going up. It's all about relative positions. And when we talk about the relative power of nations, it's important to stress that because other countries um, are really not even trying. I don't know if they've noticed that they have this issue or if they just, again, haven't bothered to try. But very few countries are even making the attempt. So I guess that makes the great power list of the future... uh, an easy one to spot and uh, other countries that have so far made attempts at keeping their demographics healthy are Sweden who I believe does actually have a healthy demography they don't have to repair anything they actually have good demographics already so they're good to go uh, and the other country on the list is Hungary yeah that's it um, so Hungary making the more aggressive effort to fix the problem, which again is, I bu- I believe will serve them well in a few decades, when all of their neighbors have old and shrinking populations, while Hungary will either have a growing population, which will drive down the average age in the country, or maybe they'll just have a population that shrinks slower, because they have more kids on average which will still, again, make them fall slower than their neighbors, giving them greater relative power over their neighbors. And depending on how successful Russia's attempt at fixing their own aging demography is going to be, we may see a resurgent Russia in the latter half of the century right alongside a resurgent Hungary. Uh... And again, with all the same relative advantages over their former Soviet neighbors that we can probably expect out of Hungary over their neighbors in the Balkans and all the former Austria-Hungary territories. So we could see Hungary put together the old Hungarian Empire. We could see Russia put together the old Russian Empire uh, in the latter half of the century when when their demography is better. Or maybe they'll, maybe the Russians will just 
officially annex all the former Soviet territories that they already occupy right now, like Armenia and Azerbaijan, and Georgia, and potentially even half or more of the Ukraine at that point. Maybe they'll spawn some insurrections in, uh, uh, I don't know, the Baltics. Or maybe they'll just cut the Baltics off economically. Maybe they'll do something. Maybe something will happen and they'll just respond. And it'll completely wreck countries that are opposed to them. You never know. But for the time being, it looks like the Russians are on a bit of a defensive, but in a defensive way. Uh, they're on the defensive, but in a way that they're just ready for a counterattack, because that's kind of how they roll. So, we can look out for the demographics of countries like this, and we can look at countries who make the attempt as being potentially really successful nations in the future. Um, again, this all depends on how well they're even able to make the attempt. Because making the attempt is one thing, solving the problem is another. So we'll, we'll it'll take a while to see too. Because you can, you can get a like positive rates for a, a couple years, and then if you just drop back into the negatives, it's not exactly going to do much for you. But should these countries succeed, they will have the benefits of a young demography. Those benefits being, number one, manpower for your military and for your economy. Because, you know, having people, young people, do low-level jobs is pretty good. Uh, it's really good. Young people consume, which leads to the second power, which is a consumer base. Again, young people buy things, and a lot of the things they buy are things that they buy for the first time. Like a car. And eventually a house, but you know, will they get to that later? They rent, they purchase chairs and tables, and they purchase video games and TVs. They purchase food. They go out to eat a lot. They're a good consumer base, which is really good for your economy, um, because with a strong consumer base, you can have domestically sourced economic growth which is another benefit of a young demography. Uh, and to add to that, if you have strong domestically sourced economic growth, then you have foreign dependency on you for market access. And again, with, good with a good demography, you have a greater ability to recover your population from disasters, be it natural or man-made. Like, I don't know... A massive war that kills millions uh, if you have a negative demography like would a lot of countries in the Western world and really just the modernized world up which includes China and South Korea and Japan a lot of those countries have negative fertility rates which is which means that for every woman that they have there is Every woman there is having about less than 2.1 kids, which is considered replacement rate. So if you're below replacement rate, then you're obviously dropping. And we've seen the drop-off get really bad. For some odd reason, people chalk it up to urbanization. I'm not entirely sure. But regardless, it's happening. It's there. And it brings in 
all the detriments of an aging demography. And what are those detriments? Well, for starters, a shrinking manpower pool. Uh, because as your people get older and you aren't having enough kids to replace them, the burden of supporting the older generations keeps falling on a generation that is smaller than the older generation. And then from there, the burden is left on an even smaller generation from there. So you have a shrinking manpower base just due to the shrinking population. And on top of that, the burden of taking care of your elderly population, which will fall on the young people. You have shrinking manpower pool. If people are pre are pre-concerned with you know supporting their elderlies then you're gonna have a small consumer base they have to take care of their grandma and their grandparents so you have a small consumer base and that makes you dependent on exports exports become a necessity for economic growth which creates a dependency on foreign capital and foreign markets for economic growth Access that you can't guarantee unless you, I don't know, annex your neighbor. But how are you going to maintain your grip over them if you annex them if you have a shrinking manpower pool? Eventually, they'll just kick you out. Or they'll grind you down in some sort of war of attrition and you have to leave and then you're stuck. Because now they're definitely not going to import your goods. It creates a chronic dependency on foreign market access. And... To top it all off, having a bad demography makes it harder to recover from disasters, be it natural or man-made. How are you going to recover from a war that kills millions, potentially, or just hundreds of thousands, if you're not having enough kids to replace yourself? So, there's some of the real detriments of a bad demography and why I see countries that address the demographic issue as countries who are, by definition, setting themselves up for success. Whether or not they succeed is a different story, but they have to try in order to set themselves up for that success. So we, we're looking at Sweden, France, Hungary, and Russia dominating Europe in the coming years because they're the only ones trying to address the issue of their demographies. So we'll, we'll keep our eyes on that. We'll definitely keep our eyes on that. But now, we're going to get into the more interesting thing. And this is one I've kind of been pretty excited to talk about. And that is this new... How do I put it? Oh, I think I'll just take from my note right here. This anti-Israel coalition. And I've kind of dubbed it that it's not necessarily what it is but that's kind of what it is and that's just what i've decided to call it but what happened is that syrian military forces fired missiles at a major israeli nuclear site now let me repeat that syrian military forces fired missiles at a major Israeli nuclear site. Uh, now this by itself is a pretty huge escalation. Like really, really huge. And not miss, not nuclear missile site, but like a nuclear production site. It's so like a power plant where you, you know, 
have centrifuges that would give you the ability to make nuclear weapons. And as you purify your uranium and get the right isotopes for the, you know, for the bomb and whatnot, bombing a facility like this is a huge escalation. But I noticed something here that caught my attention, uh, even more so than what Putin said in his speech. Because just a week ago, we talked about Israel attacking an Iranian nuclear site. But instead of the Iranians counterattacking and doing something to Israel uh, in response, direct response, something reciprocal to having their nuclear site attacked, instead of Iran attacking the nuclear site, Syria did. Syria was not, they didn't have a nuclear site bombed by Israel, so why'd they do this? And I think that the fact that they've done this has marked a very important development in the geopolitics of the Middle East. Um, because now what we have is instead of the de facto sphere of influence that Iran has held over Iraq, plus their intervention in the Syrian civil war, plus their intervention in the Yemeni civil war, where they backed the Houthis, um, and their, plus their intervention in the Lebanese civil war, where they're backing, they're backing, what's their name? They're, uh, what? Hezbollah, there we go. They're backing Hezbollah. Instead of just Iran and their sphere of influence, uh, what we have is Syria acting on its own in delivering a military response to Israel in wake of Iran being attacked by Israel. So, Iran gets attacked by Israel, Syria responds by attacking Israel. Now, this is, again, effectively throwing Israel's recent actions against Iran right and taking that and then blowing it up in Israel's face by doing the exact same thing, attacking a nuclear site. Uh, and by blowing it up, nonetheless. Syria, I believe, is now an official ally to Iran. And I stress the difference between an ally and just being a part of Iran's sphere of influence. Um, and, of course, this is largely overshadowed by the Russian elephant in the room, being that Russia is probably, not probably, is definitely the more important of Syria's allies. But, but, this is still a highly important development, because what this means is that Iran's investment into backing the Assad government in Syria is starting to pay dividends, because Syria didn't have to do this, alright? Just because Russia and Iran both work together to keep Assad in power doesn't mean that Assad is gonna be friendly with Iran, just because the Russians are there and Iran is friendly with Russia. But what this is, is Iran, well not Iran, is Syria deciding to back up Iran. So maybe it's just a tit for tat and we won't see much of this afterwards. But I don't, I don't think that's going to be the case. Because Syria is almost finished with the civil war. It's going to be weak for a while. So this is probably them saying, hey, we appreciate that you kept us in power, 
let's continue to work together. Here's how committed we are to working with you. You've been attacked. We're going to attack the people who attacked you. Iran's investment into backing the Assad government in Syria has started to pay dividends because it is one thing to have outsized influence over another country who's in the middle of a civil war. It's one thing to have outsized influence over that country and try to dictate to them what you want them to do. It's another thing for that country to willingly come to your aid on its own accord while it's still fighting its own civil war. So I just really take that in for all that it's worth. And now again, Syria, I can't stress this enough, chose to do this on their own. It's meaning that the attack on Iran was regarded at least partially as an attack on Syria itself. And that, my friends, is what allies are made of. So now, recapping all that, you can see why I was so excited to get to this part of the episode. Because this, this is a major development. Iran has a friend. <laughs> they have a friend in Syria now. And this is pretty huge. Because, well, it effectively solidifies, or at the very least anchors, Iran's hold over its sphere of influence by having a solid ally to its west. Because really, it was kind of like open-ended from Iran to the Levantine coast, which is Iran, then Iraq, then Syria, then Lebanon, where for a period of time, all three of those were in civil war. Iraq's not so much in civil war right now. And I say not so much in, you know, in reference to the region we're talking about here. So, you know, there's always low-level fighting here and there. Syria is literally still in a civil war. Lebanon is still in a Syrian, in a civil war. But you have Iraq and Iran, their diplomats are meeting together, they're getting closer. You have Syria, oh my, doing a whole attack on Israel to back up Iran, so they're together now. And I, I don't know what, what intarnation is going on with Lebanon. When it's over, I'll try to get some sort of comprehensive understanding of it, but for now, I'm going to leave that alone. But... Iran's sphere of influence has just expanded to something a little bit more. A potential counterbalancing alliance to the Peninsula Shield, which is Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, uh, Qatar, I believe, and Kuwait. Well, maybe not Qatar, but definitely Kuwait, the Peninsula Shield, which is de facto allied with Israel. So what we could be seeing here is a regional balance of power between two opposing blocks where you have Iran, Iraq, Syria, and maybe potentially Lebanon in the future on one side with Russia being the guarantor uh, from far away versus Israel, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and the UAE on the other side with the United States as their outside sponsor. And given Iran's new relationship with China, we could even see China uh, push its hand on the scales here at some point as well. And this is one of the things that I've alluded to in past episodes as well. 
that as the Americans are kind of nowhere to be found, you'll see increasingly regions establishing regional balances of power. And I think this is going to be it. I think this is going to be it. So, was really excited to get to this. And now that we have, I am satisfied. Very, very satisfied. But that is all I have for today. I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world, and in this case the Middle East, is changing. It's changing, folks. And we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Hyshawn Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus. Mm-hmm.